författarscen. Jag heter Athena Färhåsad. Och jag heter Ida Linde. Och vi är programansvariga för litteraturen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern. Alldeles strax ska ni få höra författaren Ada Limon i samtal med Jenny Thunedal. Varmt välkomna! du skulle kunna gråta så häftigt att ingenting blir kvar. Som när vinden ruskar om ett träd under en storm tills varenda del av trädet genomförits av vind. Jag bor på Slättlandet nu. De flesta dagar en smula dåsig av feber i väntan på att vattnet ska sluta att självande skaka ur kroppen. Det är märkligt med sorg. Dess grepp är lika intensivt och beslutsamt som en låga. Nästan som om den vore värd att leva för. Hej! Välkomna hit till internationell författarscen. Jag heter Athena Färrochsöd och jag är programansvarig för litteraturen här på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern tillsammans med Ida Linde. Det ni just hörde var en dikt av Ida Limon ur diktsamlingen Bärandet översatt av Henrik C. Enbom och utgiven av 20-tal. Ida Limon är en amerikansk poet. Hon har utkommit med sex diktsamlingar och introduceras nu med Bärandet på svenska. Hon är också USAs poet Laureate, det vill säga dess USAs nationalpoet. Mm. Eh, och ikväll är hon här. Eh, vilket är otroligt för att prata med ingen mindre än den svenska poeten Jenny Thunedal. Varmt välkomna. Welcome. Ida och Jenny. Hello. Hello. Uh, I sat on my mic. Oh, there we go. Uh, hello, Ada. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you so much for having me. It's such a pleasure to be here. Uh, we're going to have a conversation for about an hour, but I asked you if you could read a couple of poems mm-hmm. just to start us off. And one will be from the carrying, and the other one will be from the hurting kind. Hello, everyone. So nice to see your faces. Um, We were talking backstage for a moment and talking about what poems to read. And Jenny uh, writes a lot of dream poems. And so we thought we'd begin with a dream poem. How most of the dreams go. First, it's a fawn dog. And then, it's a baby. I'm helping him to swim in a thermal pool. The water is black as coffee. The cement edges are steep, so to sink would be easy and final. I ask the dog, that is also a child, is it okay that I want you to be my best friend? And the child nods, and the dog nods. Sometimes he drowns. Sometimes we drown together. Mm. Thank you. Mm. And then the second poem after a, a sad dream poem. I was just lightening the mood there. Yeah. Um, is I think of more of a resurrection poem. Mm. A poem that makes sense for, uh, in 
in Mexican culture, there's a day called El Dia de los Muertos, which is um, the Day of the Dead. And I think this is a poem that in some way speaks to that um, resurrecting we do, the honoring we do of the dead. Instrumentation. If I could ever play an instrument for real, I like the idea of playing the jawbone, the rattle of something dead in your hands, the thing that beats back at the sky and says, I'm still here, even though clearly the donkey isn't here or the horse isn't here, just the teeth and the jaw making music like resurrection or haunting or just plain need. What I like most is that the jawbone is an idiophone, which I misread once as ideaphone. But an idiophone is just that it makes music by the whole thing vibrating without strings. I want that, that kind of reeling in the wind, all those loose dry teeth, all the old bones of the skull, all the world, and the figure swaying with its stick to make untuned music, even death cannot deny. Oh, thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess, is it okay to start with the obvious? Mm. Uh, you write very mm. powerful poetry. Mm. There's a lot of life and there's a lot of death. There's a lot of sadness. And I have been reading these two books together. I mean, they're different to each other, but I still feel that in some ways they are more like each other than the rest of your work. Mm. Mm -hmm. Could you say, did something happen? Uh, I mean, would you agree with that at all? Yeah. I love asking a poet, did something happen? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Life. Yeah. Life happened. Um, I do, I think you're totally right. I think that the hurting kind and the carrying are both very, they're in the same world. Um, and I think it was in a moment for myself as an artist, it's very easy, I think, to get caught up when you're, when you're a maker of anything, to think everything I make must be radically different than the next, Right? Um, the great poet Louise Glick always said that about her poems, that she wanted every book to be entirely different than the, than the last book. And I think in some ways I'm the opposite. Um, in only that I want to know that what I'm doing is true. <laughs> and it is true for me and my body and the way that I'm changing and moving into the world. And I think what happens is that I grow in age and hopefully live even longer if given the opportunity, that it's not about making something different or new, but staying true to the original impulse, whatever that might be. Um, and so I think these two books are in the same world of that philosophical shift that's not about... Um, wrecking something or building something new or but instead building upon things and here's this foundation now expand it and I think that's why those two books speak so well together mm. yeah and could, what is the foundation <laughs> oh um, mortality <laughs> yeah 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 that we're all going to die mm. um I'm not telling you anything new. <laughs> um, no, but I mean, if I am, I'm really sorry. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think that most artists, at some level, that's where their work comes from. I, you mm -hmm. know, you would probably agree that there's a moment in your poems that there is the reason that you're making something or the reason that you're paying attention or the reason that you're doing something for joy 
or for kindness or for rage is in that moment of recognition of, of your own death or the death of others um, or the death on, a, on large scales. Mm-hmm. So I think that there's always that sort of shadow and the ability to, in some ways, work both against it and with it are in both of these books. Mm. Yeah, because they're both also to do with time a lot. Mm. Uh, the hurting kind is mm. is like a year. Mm-hmm. It's structured with the seasons mm-hmm. instead of sort of from beginning to an mm-hmm. end. It has a more circular movement mm-hmm. almost. Yeah. And I guess the carrying is a lot to do with the, the time of the body as mm. well. Yeah. Um, but... I would say maybe when I read your poems, they are more about the mortality of others, mm. that you make room for grieving in a special mm. way. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I Atiana think... read this poem mm-hmm. about after the fire, mm-hmm. about yeah, yeah, grief also yeah. as a kind of flame. I mean, I think that... I've always maintained, and I, you know, I don't know how you feel, but I do feel like we skip grieving mm. often, almost all the time. We skip it. We're just sort of, we're supposed to move through it. We're supposed to go from here to here. And, um, you know, you take a week off after someone dies. Yeah. If that. Mm. And then you come back to work. You pack it all up. And I don't think that that's how grief works. And I think that poems that can honor grief, you know, or honor others mm-hmm. are really important to me in that sort of, the, the language of grief, making space for it um, and the importance of it. You know, I think I can say, oh yeah, like, you know, we're all going to die and da da But losing someone is profoundly difficult. And we don't give it any kind of attention. You know, we talk about birth way more than we talk about death. Mm. And um, that's always surprising to me. You know? We don't, we don't have a lot of time for that. And I feel like poetry always makes space for that. Yeah. You know? It does. But yeah, but you also make space for it by, uh, I mean, the grief is sort of part of life, Mm. I feel very much in your poems. Mm. It's part of digging in the garden or watching the trees or even watching a train go by. It's, It's like, it's not separate. Yeah. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, no. is it? <laughs> no. I mean, I mean we all wish it was, you know? It'd be so great if we're like, oh, I'm going to pour my grief into here. Yeah. And then keep it over here, you know? Mm. But it doesn't, it just, it's always with us. Mm. But I think of, if we think about it as something that's actually not something that's distant, I, I think we can also love it. Like, isn't grieving a way of loving? And isn't that, so lucky that we got to love. Yes. So that's how I, you know, it's mm-hmm. a constant act for me to think about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I used to have this thing where I would write a poem or I'd written a poem about someone who had passed, someone close to me. And then I'd sit down to write a poem about s- something else and they would come back. And I would be annoyed, you know? I would be like... No, I've already written a poem about you. <laughs> mm. Mm. You know, I'm not I'm not supposed to do another poem about you. But then I would listen and be like, "No, there is another poem." And it's no, maybe it's not supposed to be for everybody, but maybe it's just for me that I am supposed to do this work with you right here in this room that I feel your presence and I feel this act. Mm. Um and I think that to me is really I still take it very seriously in my work. Yeah. Is that sort of moment where it becomes like communing with them in some way. Mm. Do you think poetry has the power to 
comfort to heal. Mm. I think I want to say yes. <laughs> And I also feel like it's so individual. I think that um, poetry can shift and change a person that's open to that shift and change. Um, and I think there, for some people, they need to walk in the woods or they need to cry or they need to do something else that's, that's for them. Mm. They're the place where they go to reset mm. or to open or be safe, you know. Um, for me, poetry does that. And I know a lot of people that I work with and, and move in the same worlds with, poetry can do that. Um, I don't know if it can do it for everybody. But yeah. you see it as part of the task of poetry? Mm. Does poetry have a task? That's, that's, yeah. that's what I would, I mm. would wonder. I don't mm. know. I, don't, I think there's a part of me that doesn't want to assign anything to poetry. Because I feel like poetry is like the unruly child that if you're like, you're supposed to do this immediately, poetry is like, mm, I don't think so. Mm. They're like, I, I, would, I think I prefer to just do this. And so sometimes you have mm. to, you know, if I, if I presume that a, that a poem or poetry in general must do X, Y, and Z, I worry that then I would approach even writing with that. And you never know. When I sit down to the page, I don't know. Like maybe it's going to do something completely unexpected. Um, but I do think that there's a reason why at memorials and funerals, people go to poems, hmm. you know, because I think it is and can be a container for grief and partly because it doesn't have any answers. It doesn't have any um, wisdom, <laughs> But it makes space for what is, is what is, is what is. And that is really powerful. So I think it can absolutely be part of the grieving process for those that can be open to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, this book, The Carrying, uh, that is now uh, in Swedish, Bärandet by Henrik. Uh, thank you, Henrik. Uh, <laughs> thank you, Henrik. Uh, it is a book that is full of a variety of emotions, mm. I would say. I mean, there is this, there is mortality and mm. there is a grieving and there, there is the issue of carrying. What, what can I carry? Can I carry a child or can I carry grief? Mm. But there's also this sense that the poems can carry so much. Yeah. That the poems can carry a bulk mm. of things and that they can carry the the speaker mm. of the poems. Mm. Um, and I feel that the speaker in both these books, the eye of the poem, mm -hmm. is sort of shifting. Mm. It's there at the center and then it moves out could you is that something that you work with consciously yeah. sh sort of shifting the eye do you understand yeah. what i'm getting at yes, yes. there's this presence that is sort of talking moving in the world witnessing but also stepping back mm -hmm. yeah i think i'm very interested in the way in which the lens goes in and out mm. in poetry I've always been interested in that, but also as a way, even in, um, you know, meditation where we think about, oh, you know, thinking, focus on, on something that's small, but then also think, oh, I'm a body on a planet that's spinning. I'm, you know, just widening out and what that does to the work when you put yourself at the center, okay, then take yourself out mm. of the center, you know, what, how does that shift? I'm very interested in that perspective because I think that so much of our lives can be spent like, I need to do this. <laughs> I have a checklist. These are the things I need to do. This is what's expected of me. I will show up on time. You know, all of these things. Mm. And then you start to think, okay, like poetry is the place where you think, oh, I'm noticing that bird. And then you think, oh, is that bird noticing me? 
And then you have this relationship that's completely, can stop time, mm. you know? And can I'm so interested in can test stop time. Mm. I mean, I think, you know, some people ask me, you know, that in my work that often time shifts Mm. as yeah, so does yeah, yeah. so does the perspective mm. and i would laugh and i said because oh cuz me for me time doesn't exist and it's only because i'm suspicious of it i'm i'm i feel like does time exist i, I don't know is this because i'm jet lagged i don't know <laughs> um but i do feel like there's a level in which what is happening to me now um i still feel like the person who was me five years ago or 10 years ago is still part of me and is still experiencing what they went through. And the person that is the future me is with me at the same time. And I feel like that kind of perception is a, is a, is a lot of how I approach poems, mm. is that if, we, if I'm really paying attention to what my thought process is, I am in the moment, yes, but then I'm also remembering and I'm also projecting and I'm also thinking about ways in which I've been taught or programmed to think X, Y, and Z or all, any of those things. Mm. And I'm hoping at its best, my poetry is an attempt to explore that, is to map that strangeness of time and of perspective and that shifting outward, the shifting in. And because to me, that's what makes life interesting mm. is just its strangeness. Mm. And um, I was saying we don't, you know, make time for grief and I feel like we don't make time for strangeness. You know, we don't make time for the weirdness of the world. I mean, life is really weird. <laughs> Is a very, very <laughs> weird. It's a strange thing. And I think that um, I love that poems explore that. I love that poems are making room for our weirdness and celebrating it, you know? I was thinking now, is that one of the reasons why animals are very present? Mm. Because I think I love animals because they are weird. Yeah. Because they make room for weirdness. Yeah, they do. Yeah. Yeah, every time I learn a new animal fact, I'm like, what? Mm. Mm. I just saw something that how butterflies will eat the tears off of turtles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's like, what is this? Mm. Mm. Is this how is this a miracle mm. I did not mm. know about? Mm. You know? And they do. And, and also the way that <laughs> they, they, do. They, they do. And the way that they look at you, you know? Mm. And you realize, oh, they're like, they're very suspicious. But then they can be kind of, oh, this mm. one I trust, mm -hmm. you know? Mm. It's, it's a strange thing. To me, when I read, I mean, oh, look, that's I'm, just I'm pouring me. My when, I, when I read my, uh, when I read your poems and I read about the dreams and the animals and the mortality and the body, mm. to me, all this is profoundly feminist poetry. Mm, yes. You, oh, 100%. Oh, yes, yes. yes. <laughs> good, good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I yeah. was thinking that there's also very <laughs> I little... I was like, yes. uh -huh. Yeah, you never know with yeah. people, you know, you need to... <laughs> I always say my two favorite F words are forgiveness and feminism. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> uh, and you... And... And I'm thinking that there is... There is this notion of, you, you write somewhere, I said to my friend, the body is so body. Mm -hmm. And she nods mm -hmm. or something. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I'm thinking that there's this insistence also in bringing the, the female body into mm -hmm. the poem in yeah. various ways. Yeah. Could you... Talk a little about that, because I find that very interesting. I love that you bring that up, because it actually dovetails really nicely with the idea of like the weirdness, right? Yeah. Of being alive. Yeah. The strangeness of the body is fascinating to me. Mm. And we know so little about it, but we know so little about the, the female body. 
Really? I mean, mm. we were just listening to something where they were saying that, you know, almost all um, medications aren't tested on women. Yeah. <laughs> they're just tested on men. And then they're like, good luck to you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, I'm fa- I am fascinated by it. Mm. I'm fascinated with how we treat it, how we talk about it. Um, I remember moments... Um, even recently being pulled aside by women into a room being like, we have to talk, we have to have this conversation about the body right now. (laughs) Is this happening to you? Are you going through this? Is this what's going on? You know, but we're doing it behind closed doors in this sort of way in which it's almost as if it's shameful. And I find it so strange because, you know, we're more than half of the population. Mm -hmm. It's nothing shameful about our human experience. Um, it's beautiful. Yeah. And I find that we do so much of that work in isolation. And I think if, if, if my poems do, especially I think in The Caring, but in all my poems, I think there is that, that nod, that look toward, I want to show this and talk about it so that if at any moment this happens to you, you know <laughs> that it has also happened to even one yeah. other person. Yeah. You know? And it doesn't have to be huddled in the bathroom that we have this conversation. Mm. I think that's a very powerful thing in both these books, that the notion of not being a mother. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think that there is also a a kind of notion that it the the important thing is to to write motherhood. I mean to to make room for motherhood mm-hmm. in in poetry of mm-hmm. course that's important but it's also for me very special that you 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 make room for n- the not mother oh thank you the not being mother thank you and that you use the the horses mm. could you talk a little bit about the horses and yeah. motherhood yeah please <laughs> i love that question could you talk about the horses and oh, motherhood sorry. is it <laughs> this is beautiful it's too di- <laughs> i love it um yeah i feel like i you know when we were talking earlier about shame or that uh, the idea of sort of the, the women's experience being behind closed doors, I think that's the one thing that's always surprising to me too, is that if you write about motherhood and you write motherhood poems, then you would be maligned for writing poems about being a mother. <laughs> or you could be like, oh, this is another poem about being a mother. You know, like you can't mm-hmm. win. You can't, yeah. you can either do, it's mm-hmm. like, what is this, this, this interesting place where you can't quite get into the right, you know, uh, zone of doing what is approved. Mm-hmm. And so once you figure that out, you realize, oh, well, then I, I don't want to do anything that is because I think someone else approves of it. You know, in fact, I should do everything that is only for my own uh, creative impulses and my own community. Uh, So I think for me, what was surprising was that all of these women who were going through fertility treatments and men too, who were like, oh, we tried for a long time or this happened to us. All of these conversations were where they would pull me aside and say, oh, you're going through that? I'd be like, yeah, I didn't know you went through that. I, I I had known them for, you know, mm. five years while they were going through some, no one ever said anything. And I thought it was so strange because when I was going through it, I thought I was the only person. I knew I wasn't, right? But it felt so strange to me that people weren't having these open conversations. Um, and I think that was one of the impulses to mm-hmm. write that book, mm-hmm. um, was to really let that be known. To go back to the strangeness. Also, to not let it necessarily be sad. Yeah, I because, was... Yeah. Yeah. Because it felt like the other part of that was that, oh, you're going through that. Mm. You know? I was like, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. It, it always felt like the narrative had to be this sort of sadness. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't look at it that way. Mm. And I think that... Um, in both of these books, there's moments that I have with horses. That, yeah. and one with the, the carrying, which is um, our horse that we own, if you can say you own on anything, 
Um, or a horse that we know, <laughs> was pregnant. And it was a strange moment because it was right at a time where we were just deciding not to have, not to try anymore and not to go through the treatments and to be child-free. And then to witness that experience with this mare and that sort of fullness. And then I thought, what if my job was to carry something else? And what if that carrying was to be an artist? And couldn't that definition be enough? Would I have to transform into mother to be a woman? Or could I just transcend into artist and be a woman? Or just be an artist? Does it even need woman there? You know, I don't know. I'm curious about all those things. And so um, I think there, there was a lot of times that animals, and especially horses, you know, my husband and I live in Kentucky, so it's horses are everywhere, um, but they're also powerful and majestic, and there's this overwhelm to them when you're in the room with them, in the world with them. And I feel like uh, I took a lot from that and from them and watching them. Mm. and also releasing it. I think that they allowed me to kind of envision something and then allowed me also to release that thing. That um, we could have different different jobs mm. and that the job of an artist, of witnessing, of holding, um, and laying it down was just as important as the job of motherhood. And that felt very radical for me to admit to myself. And then I thought, well, what if I said that in poems and put it out into the world as well? And so that was that was the impulse for mm. some of those interactions. Mm. Yeah. Were you ever afraid uh, writing these poems about becoming an artist instead or... Was I ever afraid? I don't know. I mean, I think that fear is so... I mean, I'm... Part of me wants to say I'm always afraid. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Of everything. Oh. And then the other part of me wants to say I'm not afraid of anything. Mm. And I think those things are both true. Um... Georgia O'Keeffe, the great painter, has that wonderful quote, you know, I've been afraid my entire life and it's never stopped me from doing anything. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel that way. Like it's, there's a lot of fear yeah. about writing and writing your own personal experience. I think the biggest thing for me was that I needed to know where I was, where I stood and where we stood as a family to like decide not to have children, to be child-free I needed to know that before I published the book. I don't think I was scared of writing it. Mm. I think I was scared sharing it. That's actually what I was, uh -huh. yeah, yeah. That's what I was so aiming at. So that's a very at. different yeah. thing. Yeah. Um, because writing it is freeing mm. and I can write anything. Mm. But I mean, you know, without being scared of it. But it's once you hand it over to anyone else and say, oh, And then they'll say, oh, we're going to take all of these. And you go, oh, no. Those were the filler poems you were supposed to not take in the back. Um, and so that's when you start to go, oh, here are some conversations that I might need to have, not just with people in your life, but with yourself. Yeah. About are you ready to, to, let, to let those in the world? And so mm -hmm. those, that was a big thing. Mm -hmm. um, but I was, I was, you know... We we were secure in our in our life before I put the poems into the world. Mm. So that was that was what it took. Mm. But I think uh, the hardest part for me with this book in particular was that the very first reading I gave from it, I was in Southern California, and my father and my um, stepmother were in the audience. And um, afterwards, at the book signing line, 
all of these wonderful, well-meaning people came up and asked me if I had tried certain things. And um, it said, you know, have you gone (laughs) gluten-free? I was like, yes, of course. Isn't everyone? Um, You know, it was like, have you done this? I mean, one woman slipped me the name of her doctor. And I was so, I just, it was so overwhelming. And it was also very hard because a lot of people were sharing their stories with me, which was both beautiful and I honored, but also I had to then become the container for all of their experiences. And I, I was not prepared for that. So I think that, you know, mm-hmm. I could prepare myself somewhat, but I wasn't prepared for that sort of like, oh, I'm so glad you wrote about this because just yesterday, and I was like, oh, I, I, this is this is a lot. Um, and so the second reading I gave was really one of the first times I used the word speaker. You know, in poetry mm-hmm. we say, the speaker does this, the speaker does that. And I'm always like, oh, I'm the speaker. And this time I said, the speaker... <laughs> of these poems is happily child-free and does not need any advice. <laughs> and I, had, I did not envision that that was something I would have to do or ever. And, and I did it, and, 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 and Ember was very respectful and, and lovely about it, and it was, it was fine. But, I, but the first reading um, kind of knocked me over. I, did, I wasn't prepared for that. Mm. You know, mm. there was a lot of... A lot mm-hmm. of advice. It was it was done in a way of of supreme care. I don't want it to make it sound yeah. like it wasn't, mm-hmm. um, but it was it was it was it was a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and this book uh, mm-hmm. is a pandemic book. Is it? Mm-hmm. Is that a correct? Assumption. Some some of it was written during it. I would say a third of it was written during in the pandemic. Mm. Mm. Yeah, because it's a lot about distance and about a sort of lack of touch mm. and about isolation. Yeah, uh, and that's something that I feel that you have also in many of your poems in this book but also in the carrying mm. this mixture of it's like you insist on a kind of co- connectedness mm. or you aim for mm. intense connectedness mm. but without giving up without pretending that there is no loneliness mm-hmm. um and to me that is very strong also in how you use quotes from Mm. other people and Mm. how you there's this I read an interview that said that you had your stepdad said do not lose your voice Mm. yeah and of course that is a good thing Mm -hmm. uh, but I feel that your voice is also a multitude of voices yeah there's I mean you work with people have said stuff to you etc and Because I'm a poet myself, I want to know how, a little bit about how you work with these things. Yeah. How do you work with bringing in other other voices? Yeah. I love that you're saying this because we were just having this discussion about this, which is a lot of people will say, oh, there's lots of plants and animals in your poems. Mm. And I'm always like, but there's a lot of people in my poems. (laughs) Yes. There's a lot of people. And I feel like I'm very interested in you know, um, that the, that we spend so much of this time in, in our poems that don't have anyone else in them. Mm. Like it's just the I or it's just the you. I'm like, well, like, oh, so you live alone in a white room yeah. with only your poems, you know? Mm. I, I, so I, I think that I populate my poems because my life is populated. And if I'm staying true to the authenticity the authentic experience of my own body and mind and heart, there's a lot of people in my life, Hmm. you know? And a lot of them are much more interesting than me. Um, And it's a lot of also like quotes that I'm reading, you know, if I'm reading, you know, I love the the poet um, Alejandro Pijarnik from Buenos Aires and 
Um, I've just been reading a lot of Storni also from Buenos Aires. Uh, and I feel like there's a, there's a level with, um, you know, I never want to pretend that I've had the first idea of something. <laughs> you know, I'm not the poet that's like, oh, this is, this is the first time anyone's thought this. I'd much rather say, so-and-so said this, and my friend said this, mm -hmm. and this is, you know, mm -hmm. because that's how we live. We're always braiding it together. You know, there's never one, you know, I, suddenly it's not like, oh, and then I had the epiphany that life was, you know, I wish that would be wonderful. Um, but I've never had an epiphany, and it's especially not one that I've trusted. You know, usually I'm like, well, nope. That's gone. Mm -hmm. And so I, I much would rather, you know, bring in the communities around me, the friends, the family, the other artists, the other writers, and give them space, you know, in my own work mm -hmm. and let them be honored there in a way and then make room so that we can kind of walk together the way we do in real life. And I want my poems to feel that way. I want them to feel like life. Um, I want them to feel alive. And um, that's a, it's a very important part of my work, is to not just, and not just quotes or songs or people who have passed, but people who are living and friends. Mm -hmm. You know, like you brought up the quote, you know, I say to a friend, yeah, the body yeah. is a body. Or yeah. in, in that book, the great poet Arasalis Garmey is in it. In this book, you know, so many poems that I've written with Natalie Diaz, mm -hmm you know, who's just here mm. in response to her work. You know, all of these, um, those feel really important to me, that those lifelines. Natalie Diaz actually said something. Uh, I don't know if I can quote it correctly. You might have to help me, Athena. But she was saying that her poems, they just end. They don't have endings. Yeah. But your poems have proper endings. They do, yeah. And proper we've, starts. We've had this, she and I have oh, had this discussion right, before. Right, Yeah. So you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think her, I think she says that. Mm. But I think that she has amazing endings. <laughs> I mean, if everyone was just like, oh yeah, my poems just end. You'd be like, really? That's just how your poem ended, Natalie? <laughs> okay, brilliant. Mm. Brilliant one. Mm. <laughs> Um, but I, yeah, for me, I, I, I do, I, I have endings and I, I, I think endings are really important. Why? Um, I think it's part of us as artists making a decision. I think sometimes we don't want to make a decision with our poem. Mm. Um, and so we just sort of release it. You know, we think, well, maybe someone else will have a idea or thought and they will complete it with their yes. self. And I think that that sometimes can, is not, is, is not always the, is an easier out. And I'm interested in what we do as artists to make a decision. I think most poems for me when the ending fails is because I'm trying to see a multitude of endings instead of choosing one. Mm. Um, and I think the other thing when I think about endings and honoring them is that um, it goes back to what I said earlier about not making space for grief or not making, I feel like we don't make space for endings. Like, you know, relationships can end and someone will say like, oh, are you so excited to, you know, find someone new? You know, so very, very quickly we move on to this thing. You know, you just even end a job and the next thing is like, what's next? What's next? And we live in that world. And I think sometimes my attention to endings is part of that philosophy of that it's important to honor the poem with the ending that shows that this was a thing. <laughs> mm -hmm. That together we went through something and there was a door you walk through at the beginning and at the end, the door shut. You know, or it opened another door, or we all went out the window. Mm. You know, but something happened, and that to me is important. Mm. But do you think, yeah? Uh, do you think that? I mean, there is this. 
I think this is so interesting because you want to decide, but you also want to open up mm-hmm. as a poet. Yeah. And that's sort of the difficult thing. You yeah. want to make room. You also need to make room for the yeah. reader. Yeah. But you also, you were, you were saying you need to make a decision. I mean, I think the reader is going to bring themselves to the poem no matter what. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to walk into the room mm-hmm. and they're going to look around and be like, oh, this reminds me of my grandma. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, this reminds me of that. Or they're going to be like, I don't like that. Mm-hmm. You know, they walk in, they do their thing. Mm-hmm. This ending means this to me. Mm-hmm. That's what they do. Yeah. What you need to know is it the right ending for me. And I think that I love offering something to the reader. I think of all my poems as offerings. But I think that they also have to be an offering to me first. And they have to do that work for me first. Mm-hmm. That I have to be like, oh, okay, that's the thing I went through. And that is how that is now. You know? And I think that I feel, um, I guess I sort of, what I should say, I should push against when something's too open-ended. Because I do think that there's a moment in which that artist has decided it's not just about them not making a decision, but also that the thing they created didn't actually deserve a closure, Mm. you know? And it doesn't mean that every ending has to be dramatic. No. I do like a dramatic ending. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But, you know, sometimes they do have to dissipate into the ether and just end, you know, or it just has to sort of walk away. You know, if like poems were all at a party, which poem would you know, just take everyone, you know, singing out the door and just go to a next bar, <laughs> you know? It's like, that's that's like, the, the, this is the way the world ends, this is the way the world ends, mm-hmm. right? You know, end mm-hmm. with a rhythm, end with a song, mm-hmm. you know? And some somewhere Whitman is like still drunk in a bathtub speaking, you know? His poems never end. They just keep going and ongoing. And Emily Dickinson... Definitely goes out a trap door that you never saw. Mm. Yeah. You know, I think, so I think it's all these sort of, it's exciting. You never want to do the same thing, but for me, you definitely want to end. Yeah. You know, you want to, I don't believe in ghosting. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You're not ghosting the reader. And so I can't ghost the reader. Yeah. Mm. Unless I'm coming back from the dead, and then I'm definitely going to ghost the reader. But in like the haunting way. Mm. Mm. Uh, I want to ask you about this, being a poet laureate. Mm. What does it mean for you? Mm. And uh, what is it? Because we don't really have it. You're appointed by the government. I'm appointed by the Library of Congress, um, which is the largest library in the world. Um, and the librarian of Congress is the person who asked me to serve as the poet laureate. Um, I'm the 24th. The, uh, before me, there was the amazing, amazing poet, Joy Harjo. Um, and before her was, uh, the incredible, uh, Tracy K. Smith, both women I just admire so much. Um, and, uh, the laureateship's singular purpose is to expand the readership for poetry. That's what they ask of you. Um, And so uh, you can either do a national project if you want, um, but you don't have to. Mm. You know, Louise Glick was the poet laureate, and some of you uh, brought her up before, but she also won the Nobel, and uh, (coughs) she had no interest in doing anything with the laureateship. but she didn't reject it. She but just she didn't. No, she just was the uh, laureate, and mm. that you can do that, mm. you know. And mm. as she's, you know, in many ways, I, she's kind of a hero of mine because I always do the opposite thing that she would have done. But it, it I am really mm. sort of blown away by by that decision. I love it. Um, but I'm, I'm very service oriented, service service minded, and so I'm like, <laughs> okay, let me do all these things. Um, 
And of course, then I go, why did I decide to do all of these things? Um, but so I, I did decide to do a signature project. Um, it's called You Are Here, Poetry in the Natural World. Um, and I said that to um, the great poet, Claudia Rankin. And she said, oh, yeah, it's like your sneaky way of talking about the climate crisis. I said, yeah, not so sneaky. <laughs> um, and uh, it's one of, the, one of the parts of it is the project called You Are Here, which is an anthology, which is um, 50 poets, contemporary poets, talking about nature, um, writing incredible poems about nature. Um, and some of them are climate oriented and some of them are poems of loss and some of them are, are poems of praise and that comes out in April and then there is a, uh, a the second half of that project is that I'm having poetry installations in um, seven different regions of the national parks within the United States and I'll travel and give readings um, and workshops at those different uh, <coughs> national parks so it's trying to yeah. um, sort of pair these two worlds together and hopefully in some ways use poetry as a way of connecting to the natural world at a time when we need now more than ever, I hate that phrase, but it's, it seems true, um, to pay attention to what's happening to our planet. Mm -hmm. But that also, I mean, the climate crisis obviously changes the whole notion of nature poetry, right? Exactly. You can't have... <laughs> You can't have one without the other. I no. mean, you know, only Wordsworth could, you know, you know, write a poem that would be like, oh, yeah, this is just a nature poem. You know, we just don't have that luxury anymore. Nature poems are urgent. They're necessary. They're political. They're charged. Um, and they should be. Mm. And um, I think the anthology will, will show that. Mm. Which I'm very excited about. Yeah, one of the um, one of the gifts of that was that um, um, Brandy <coughs> McDougal. Are you okay, by the way? Oh uh, yes, okay. I'm okay. Don't um, mind me. Just... <laughs> uh, Brandy McDougal, who's a um, the poet laureate of Hawaii. Um, when I asked her to see if she would contribute a poem to this anthology, she immediately asked two of her other poet friends that were also native um, of Hawaii, of Maui in particular, and um, they wrote <coughs> a poem together, all three of them, all honoring Maui and the water mm. and, um, and talking about the fires that had happened and how that was a direct result of colonization. And it's just an incredible, you know, four-page poem. And, you you know, it's something I could never have dreamed of. Sorry. No, you're fine. Are you, I mean, I'm saying you're fine. Are you fine? I'm fine. <laughs> I'm fine. Um, what's it like to be a poet laureate and work with the extension of reading? And I'm thinking that... Uh, the United States is a country, a divided country, a mm. country where there's a lot of political discussion going on. There's a lot of protests right now, for mm. instance, to do with yeah. the situation and with the genocide going on mm -hmm. in Palestine and everything. Yeah. How do you feel that that taps into your work as... Yeah, I mean the one, the one. Uh, it's funny that you say, yeah, it's a dividing. I mean, it is, of course. I was going to make a joke. I was like, y you think? Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel. Uh, you know, I was with a incredible poet in um, Rio de Janeiro over the summer, and a moderator had said, you know, what do you think about poetry? at this crucial moment. And she looked up and she said, every moment is crucial. Mm. And it has really st stuck with me um, because it does always feel like, the, you know, we're at this pinnacle and then we're at this other pinnacle, right? It just feels like the crisis, it just keeps growing, you know? 
it's like one chaotic moment to another in which we're just, we can never catch our breath. And I feel, um, you know, it, it, I think that it's, it, to have a public role at this time mm. is, um, is intense because of course you think of all the different ways you can participate, all the different ways you can do your best to serve the communities that need the most serving. Um, but I keep coming back to the idea that we all have to also remember that not everybody has the same skills in the same kind of crisis, you know, that there are caretakers and storytellers and firekeepers, and there are frontline workers and activists and those that run right into the fire and all of the, you know, and that we all have to work together. And it can't be all of us doing the same thing. And so that for me, my job is to keep poetry going, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. on the, even the smallest way, even if that selfishly means me writing a poem or if it selfishly means me calling a friend and saying, I hope you're doing okay, will you write a poem? Or if it means celebrating Palestinian poets in any way that I can, or if it means, but I think that that's, I think that where I get overwhelmed is how to serve everybody, you know, and how to do the right thing and do the most good. Um, And I think that I have to remember that I am best when I'm doing the thing that I care so much about which is the power of language. And in many ways, what I love about poetry is that it celebrates the failure of language too. And so when we say there are no words, (laughs) we really mean it. We make a blank space for it. We make a sejura. We make a stanza. We make erasures. We just take out all the words. Um, And so for me, my job is, I think, to lift up the poetic voices that are really making a big statement now Mm. it's not really about my statement even though of course I'm a very political person political poet um but it's about lifting and celebrating those that are doing that incredible work thank you yeah uh we are coming very close to the end but would you like to read a new poem oh yes as an ending yeah she has some new poems (laughs) I was told. Um, this is a... The, I thought I would read this poem because I knew we would talk a little bit about um, the the You Are Here project and we talked about the climate crisis and um, it's something that's really, really important to me in my own work. And um, I was asked by the climate scientists that work on the National Climate Assessment to write a poem that would go on the cover of the fifth National Climate Assessment, which is basically all of these scientists that come together that tell us where we are as a nation. This is talking about the United States in particular, but of course this is a global crisis, but to try to um, advance and change policy um, in order to do what we can to um, talk about adaptation and mitigation when it comes to the climate crisis. Um, As I was meeting with these scientists, um, a woman followed me out into the lobby and she was crying and she had been, they had had five days of meetings and she said, I know you have to write this poem. She said, just please don't make it nostalgic. It can't be about returning to something. It has to be about how we move forward. And I was so moved with not only her tears and her exhaustion, but about what she urgently needed me to do. I don't write occasional poems. I've only written probably three in my life. And so um, this is for her in many ways. But this is the poem that is on the cover of the National Climate Assessment. Startlement. It is a forgotten pleasure, the pleasure of the unexpected blue-bellied lizard skittering off his sunspot rock 
the flicker of an unknown bird by the bus stop, to think perhaps we are not distinguishable and therefore no loneliness can exist here. Species to species in the same blue air, smoke, wing flutter buzzing, a car horn coming. So many unknown languages to think we have only honored this strange human tongue. If you sit by a riverside, you see a culmination of all things upstream. We know now we were never at the circle's center. Instead, all around us, something is living or trying to live. The world says, what we are becoming, we are becoming together. The world says, one type of dream has ended and another just begun. The world says, once we were separate and now we must move in unison. Thank you so much. That's a beautiful ending. Thank you. Thank you.